Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast here with a special guest um, about a favorite topic of mine of, of recently. Um, Paul, thank you so much for doing my show, man. If you want to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening. Great. Thank you, Robbie, for having me. My name is Paul Blow. I'm a, I'm a teacher in the business program up here for a college in Quebec City. I've been uh, very interested in the JFK assassination uh, for uh, I mean, decades Uh uh, the first book I ever wrote, read about it was Crossfire by Jim Mars. I love that book. And I probably read maybe about 50 books on the, the matter. I began reading articles, uh, sorry, writing articles for, uh, I would call it a world-renowned uh, website on the topic called Kennedys and King. And I've often been interviewed also uh, on Black Op Radio. So I, I've written about a multitude of subjects, including how history books cover the assassination, the prior plots uh, and attempts and the, the similarities uh, to try and assassinate Kennedy. Uh, I've written about what uh, the insiders, the, because, you know, there have been a, six government investigations into the case. There was a civil case, the Liberty Lobby case, uh, uh, you know, that that touched on the assassination and, and what do the insiders, the people that were close to the investigations, what do they think going back from the Warren Commission all the way up to the ARRB. Um, so I wrote a nice article and I found an awful lot of interesting quotes and statements that show that people uh, who don't believe in the lone nut scenario, um, who were insiders think a lot more like us uh, they don't believe uh, in, in a, they've said things to that effect. I'm talking about the heads of certain committees, uh, sort of like uh, if you look at Rich, uh, Richard Schweiker, senator for the uh, church committee, and you look at Richard Sprague with the HSCA and Robert Tannenbaum, and you listen and you, you, you uh, they're on the record of saying things. And I found many of those quotes and I put that in an article uh, I've written about also something that I think you'll find uh, fascinating is Oswald's links to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And what does that reveal about what was going on? Because if you understand the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which represented some weird behavior by Oswald during the summer leading up to the assassination, what was at play there? It didn't make any sense that he would join that committee in Oswald. So I, I, anyway, I, I've written about a dozen articles, which got me to uh, eventually be interviewed by Oliver Stone for his latest documentary about the prior plots uh, for Destiny Betrayed, the uh, documentary. And uh, boy, I don't know if I, if, uh, you know, that's, it gives you a little bit of a, 
the idea of my involvement with uh, with the JFK assassination. I do it more as a passion, you know, that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of how I've been with researching my own after talking to Jim and everybody, um, Dave Mantic. I'm trying to accumulate as much information as I possibly can from everybody. That means anybody who's ever wrote in a book, it might have conflicting views. I want to learn from every single person to understand this better. But there's two things I want to I think you probably can shed some light in for me. The prior assassination attempts, but also um, Oswald's. Oswald's involvement in the fair play for uh, com uh, Cuba committee, uh, mostly because I, I don't know. I know a lot of people like I know someone who believes in the lone nut theory or lone gunman theory, um, someone who's been to that book suppository building and says, just stand there and you'll know that one guy could easily fire off three shots and shoot the president. I'm like, well, what evidence does that have in court? And like, what evidence would that have that, could, that any person? I mean, I don't know every person that can make a shot like that, but let's say let's roll with that. So a lot of this is like hypotheticals when it comes to, okay, if there, this is possible, if you believe that this is this, or the, you believe the Zapruder film was this or that, whether it was or not, I want to base in what we have right now information wise and a quick assumption from any documentary that I've started to learn through doing my own research has been that everyone has depicted Oswald as this kid that wasn't loved as this kid that his parents weren't around and he just seemed like he was a mischievous boy. Now, all right. At that point, I'm like, what 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 history of Oswald is out there? What what's what would his involvement be? Apparently, he was spotted in Mexico. So then I get to this point where I'm going to pull up on screen here um, for what I just said a minute ago about Oswald not being loved by his family. Now, this file that I'm looking at here is Doc ID three, two, three, five, seven, zero, five, nine. And if you can see what I see on the screen, it says a letter to Mr. Richard Hume or yeah, it's Humes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no, Helms, Richard Helms, Helms, Deputy Director of Plans, uh, dated 17th of March, 1964 from J. Lee Rankin, um, General Counsel. Now, this second part right here is what I wanted to highlight. It says copies of letter written by Lee Harvey Oswald to his mother, uh, Margaret Oswald, when he was living in the Soviet Union. So anybody that doesn't have a good relationship and feels like your parents betrayed him, more likely than not, you're probably not writing to your parents. So this was like a first spark in my head of like, hey, maybe they're maybe trying to pin him or trying to go towards the lone gunman theory in these records and make him to be the enemy by, you know, but what sucks is a lot of those documentaries that said that are newer documentaries. That means history isn't getting that correct. And there isn't questions being asked, which I've seen you write an article about, about history's take on this seems to not be necessarily accurate in a sense when it comes to the fact of how historians remember it or how people are choosing to teach it. Now, I know it's a very, very controversial topic. I know there's a lot of stuff about it. Um, uh, when it comes to just issues that people have, I'm trying to see, uh, you know, here's the report I'm um, pulling up right here, doc three, two, three, four, one, seven, one, one. And I mean, I'm not trying to be all sporadic with all the information here, but this is how I've been coming across this, looking at the 2021 release documents um, that we all are available to see now. And this was saying that the first information they saw from Oswald came from a technical operation in Mexico City, was cabled um, in on 9th of October, 1963, it revealed that the 1st of October, 1963, Lee Oswald had been found in touch there with the Soviet Union Valley 
and I don't know that agent's names, but about a telegram which a Soviet embassy was supposed to send to him um, at to the Soviet embassy. Now, I've heard that he was trying to take away his U.S. citizen's license, and he wanted to do all this, and then he kind of went back on it and went back to the States. But there was another article in my email I have right here that I want to pull up, and it's another one that probably people didn't hear a lot about. And I know I've seen a couple of documentaries about him now that stated he was in Mexico, but never saw the other file that was dated later on in 75 that stated, no, it was a lookalike. Now, my thing is, I'm seeing him go from Russia to Mexico to all these different places, whether the time span was all this. I'm like, unless he has some new technology to travel so fast, it's just not adding up where I start going. How many kids now have a hipster hairstyle? How many kids now have the same exact clothing as the other person? Is it possible that this person that might have photographed Oswald outside of the thing might have been someone that just looked like Oswald? Nope. That, that just crossed my mind. Maybe it's not true. Um, but I'm just saying these are things that need to be thought about. But when you're at a, such a rapid pace to cover up this thing with a fancy bow, a magic bullet or one lone person is going to be the only direction that you're going to look towards, which means that any evidence that you can find or any made up evidence is what you're going to be going for. Am I somewhat getting the basis of what's happening here? If I'm crazy, just tell me. No, you're, you're uh, first of all, just in the documents that you showed, right? couple of things, uh, and I'm going to preface this. I believe there's about 10 to 12 chokeholds where you can say, when you look at this, uh, even if Oswald may have made the shot, I mean, we're talking about a conspiracy, right? So making the shot, uh, whether you made it or not, uh, doesn't explain necessarily uh, that there was no conspiracy. Right, because conspiracy, the second you have more than one person involved in, a, in the plot to assassinate Kennedy, whether there's a shooter, an enabler, or whatnot, uh, you have a conspiracy. Now, uh, let's take this Mexico City uh, uh, situation, which occurred, I believe, in October, end of September, October. Um, uh, apparently, Oswald would have gone to Mexico City in an attempt to make it to Cuba. Um, now, here's the thing. It is clear that there was an impersonator, and it's a fact. There's no doubt about it. And here's how it can be proven. And Jim Eugenio wrote an article about this. Uh, you can hear Hoover on a tape saying to Lyndon Johnson, uh, because you see, when Oswald was in Mexico City, he was to have made calls to, from the Cuban embassy to the Russian embassy. And those calls were recorded. And those calls were overheard. And they were uh, listened to after the assassination by FBI agents who had gone to Dallas to interview because Oswald survived two days, right? And he'd been interviewed for many, many hours. And while there or before, the FBI and at least eight or nine people heard the tapes or some of the tapes of Oswald talking to people in the, uh, the Russian uh, consulate or embassy. I forget what it is. But anyway, uh, and he said, hey, look, the voice on the tape is not Oswald's. Now, while he was there, you have to keep in mind that you had cameras, right? Multiple cameras. Also, 
photographing Oswald as he's entering the Cuban consulates and the Russian ones. Now, all the cameras somehow would not have worked. Okay, these were, uh, you know, uh, cameras that would be activated simply by motion, motion activation. So they have no explanation as to why those cameras did not work. So, you know, normally you would have had photographs of Oswald entering these buildings. So everything around the Mexico uh, is stinks to high heaven. And when you, 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 you cannot come to any other conclusion that he was impersonated that. Now that doesn't mean he didn't go, okay, or he wasn't there, but there's definitely someone saying incriminating things about Oswald, you know, like uh, saying things on the tape or because the transcripts survived, okay? Some, some people wrote transcripts of Russian interpreters in, uh, in uh, Mexico, and he spoke Russian so horridly on those tapes, and it clearly wasn't his voice. So the next thing you need notice on uh, one of the documents, you 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 saw the name Kostetov. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you aware a little bit who he is? Mm -mm. Okay, Kostetov. The story came out was that he was head of Russian assassinations for the Western Hemisphere. So the whole idea was to create uh, a, a story, a scenario where Oswald was talking to the head of assassinations not long before the assassination. Because the whole part A of the plot, plan A was not a moment. Plan A was, oh, Oswald, is in cahoots because there's multiple reports of Oswald that ended up all being phony, of meeting Cuban agents, trying to talk to the Russian head of assassinations, Kostetov. If you look up his name, you'll see all the story around him. And even the CIA saying, oh boy, this guy is you know, the head of assassinations. And they, anyway, when they had to go to plan B, because Johnson didn't want to go into a war with Cuba and invade and say, hey, we have proof that they're behind this. The uh, missile crisis was a year earlier, right? And they didn't want to go in that direction. So they had to go the loan nut proof. And that's where all these traces and everything became a huge problem. So that, that is, by the way, uh, Robbie, in my view, one of the biggest chokeholds is Oswald, what he did in Mexico or supposedly did. And if you read, if you read Jim's article on that, uh, you know, you'll see that there's no doubt that he was impersonated. So what, what, what's his story about impersonating a lone nut, a drifter? Um, you know, does make sense. So here's the another file that was released, which says right here, a photo of unidentified man was taken in front of the Soviet embassy in um, in Mexico. This photo was taken by Station Mexico photo surveillance of the Soviet embassy during the month of October 1963. When news of the arrest of Oswald as Kennedy's assassin became known, the station immediately forwarded copies of the photos to the FBI in the mistaken assumption that the photo was of Oswald taken while he was in Mexico that fall. It was later determined that the photo was not of Oswald and in fact 
been taken after he had departed Mexico. Oswald was in Mexico from the 26th of September through the 3rd of October 1963. Even though the photo was not of Oswald, it had been taken and shown to Oswald's wife and mother with the background um, partially uh, cropped in an effort to disguise the place where the photo had been taken. The photo became somewhat of an issue when the Warren Commission decided it belonged in the report as part of an exhibit since it had been shown to Oswald's. Now, here we go where I start saying, this is how you get your family to turn on you. If you have a photo that's cropped in a certain way or might not show a person's face, but it looks like maybe your son, um, for instance, especially if they want to round up this theory or this idea that Oswald wasn't loved by his family and wasn't loved by whatever was just a misfit child, then maybe his mother wouldn't recognize that it wasn't Oswald. But the photos, when they crop them, this is how you get your family to say, well, maybe he did do it. And then they turn on you. And then you immediately lose all hope in the people that are supposed to trust. Robbie, you. can I cut you off? If yeah. I may? Have you seen that photo? I haven't seen that photo. Okay. That photo is widely available. You can find it and it doesn't look announced like Oswald. So that, that created a huge problem. Uh, if you look at it, yeah. If you Oswald impersonation, I, and he, the person may have even have been identified and, uh, yeah, go to images probably. I'll show you. Uh, scroll down, scroll down. Now, so if you, you look, um, if you put Oswald photo, imposter photo in Mexico, try that. Oswald imposter photo. In, ah, there. This there. one. Okay, you, you see the guy on the left? That's the guy. This guy right here? No, no, no. Uh, go to the second photo to your left, top left. This one? Yes. That's our guy. Okay. He's supposed to be Oswald. Now, I mean. It doesn't it, look it, anything like him. No. Well, see, this photo right here, this one right here, is the one that they say that's how they know that Oswald did it. It's the same rifle and everything like that. But Oswald had mentioned saying that this photo was cropped. Yes. The, the top of his face was cropped. So now doing my own research, like I said, I have a document right here that says following is an excerpt from the page 364 from the Warren Commission report after um, it says Affin Davids uh, obtained from the CIA and from the two FBI agents who trimmed the photographs established that the one shown to Miss Oswald before the commission um, through Trump uh, through trimmed differently from the one shown to her on November 23rd was a copy of the same picture. Neither picture was of Jack Ruby. So I don't understand where are they talking about this photo of Jack Ruby? Cause I couldn't find the, the, the terms that they were using to disguise this, unless they were talking about the photo where Oswald said that his face was cropped. So I just go, did they show a photo of Oswald? The, the same photo that maybe that they had of Oswald already with the rifle. And then they showed another photo showing, see, it's the same exact rifle, just different shirts or something. But then I've seen people talk about how they've done simulations to prove that it was that person. And I'm just like, it's so like, I understand everybody's investment, much like I'm getting invested into this to have their own kind of research and information and say, this is how I came across it. So this must be true. But I'm like, it's gotta be something bigger than that. Like we all have to really put our resources together here to show that obviously the Warren commission was lying and trying to pin it on one specific thing. Whether that was to avoid war with Cuba, they were implementing Russia in a huge way. 
which means were they going back into war with Russia? Was it going to be more than a cold war? Was it going to be something that was going to advance farther? I mean, I don't mean to take us in a weird direction in this chat, but I'm coming across this information and I'm 24 and I'm new to this. And I can see that there's a lot of stuff that just isn't making sense. There's a lot of psychological issues, which made me dig deeper into Oswald's past. And what I came across was that there was another person that Oswald killed that day, apparently, allegedly killed. Now, if you if you read up the Tibbetts case, the way that it's documented and whether you want to read it through Wikipedia or whatever, any other person who wrote an article about it says that they saw a man with the same backpack as Oswald, but every single person that saw that said there's no way a rifle could have fit in there, which is the one why he left it at the plaza. But the gun that he also had with him, a small little uh, rifle or revolver. Now, the guy who saw him and said that that's Oswald said that he fired three shots and they can tell by the two cases. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but they just said they heard three shots and that they can add it up through two cases. So I go, how do you so now you're just going off of this person's idea that there's three shots being fired, but you only have evidence of two cases. And there's just a lot of like, even with Tibbetts, which really sucks for him is because they only give him a paragraph on a Wikipedia, like they didn't care because everybody was more worried about President Kennedy at that time. And I figured that if they could say that Oswald killed this cop or this person, um, and you have someone that might have seen it might not have, I don't know. Uh, it's really easy to just lock them away even more if you can pin two deaths on them, one being the president, one being something else. Now, I know you're laughing. I can't tell if maybe I'm going crazy. No, 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 okay. no, no. I'm, I'm not laughing. I, 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 <laughs> if, if you're someone who's trying to, you know, uh, you, you, you realize how many things have to go right for Oswald to be alone uh, alone nut here. Eh? You know, it's the three perfect shots, including one that caused seven wounds, right? Uh, mm -hmm. One that caused five wounds to Connolly and two to uh, Kennedy. Uh, you know, then you get the headshot and then you have the third shot that hits a bystander. And then you have to, I mean, there, 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 there's so many things that when you say, well, wait, if there's an imposter of Oswald in Mexico City, you've got a conspiracy. If the photos you've shown, which by the way, if you look at that photo, what, what's intriguing is it, it's so convenient, right? Because he's got his Carcano in one hand and he's got the pistol that killed Tippett in the other hand and he's got uh, papers militant you know to show i'm a communist so you know, like, yeah if you look yeah. at the photo i'm a communist here's my gun and here's my rifle and you know so that's why i chuckle when i see some of these things and the crop line seems to be right here and if you look at the th because there are four photos right there are four photos uh of him in the backyard the backyard photos you you uh you see a crop line and Every photo has exactly the same expression from the chin, uh, the lips up, you know, that it looks like. And the person who would have taken the photo is Marina now, apparently. Okay. But when they asked Marina to uh, recreate how she took the photo, it was sort of a camera, you know, a belly camera where you, you press from the top. She didn't know how to operate it. Okay. She did not, she could not recreate how she took the picture. See, she didn't know how to take a picture with the supposed camera that took the picture. So what you have there is uh, something 
that was to frame Oswald in the eyes of the public. And that photo made it uh, to Life magazine, right? So it was a very convenient uh, photo. Um, but you know what? Interesting enough that, you know, when I talk to you about 10 to 12 chokeholds, I don't even use that one as a chokehold. Okay, I just find it very suspicious. But I don't get bogged down in that one because, uh, it, you know, you, you, there, there, there's so many others, like the impersonation of Oswald in Mexico City causes the lone nut scenario people fits. They don't know what to say about it. They can't, they, 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 they can't uh, come up with uh, arguments and they end up looking ridiculous. Uh, the other one that makes turns them, you know, if you want to look at some other chokeholds where you say by, well, I would think the prior plots. Okay, when you look at the prior plots and, uh, and you say, oh my God, there's a template here. There's a template. It's just too similar from one to the other. But go on. I, I, uh, that's why I'm chuckling. It's not because. Yeah, okay. the... Well, I want to talk about the prior plots, um, but I have two things before we go into the pr prior plots. One, I, when I was speaking with Dave Mantic was I, I told him this is kind of like a fine wine. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, when I'm reading through the JFK, I stumbled across the RFK where I've gotten confused sometimes with talking to Jim and everybody where I'm like, oh, that's the RFK case. They just seem so similar. I've, my brain ends up my algorithm, whatever feeds me into the RFK case, but I'm smelling it when I say it's like a fine wine and I'm picking up notes of JFK when I'm reading through Robert Kennedy's assassination and I start going. So there has to be a template in a sense. If I'm picking up the same notes, it's good to have those instincts. And I trust my instincts on an aspect of, okay, maybe science isn't going to say that's reliable, but for me it is because it's steered me right in every part of my life basically. Um, but when I go to Abraham Bolden, for instance, who hopefully I hope to get on here as well. Um, I hear him talk about the how the secret service members talked about or someone in specific I heard him mention say that to kill um a, how would you assassinate the president I would do it from a tall building with a rifle was the words that were said and Bolden being one of the first black secret service members said that I think that's very very wrong and suspicious because you're supposed to protect your president no matter if you disagree or not now, they, he did go a little bit more into the drinking habits of the Secret Service members that day. Maybe everybody wasn't up to par. But one thing that was always recorded through history on every single document or every single documentary talked about how JFK didn't really need service Secret Service members. He wanted to keep them at a distance. And I go, yeah, well, if they're talking about assassinating you or how would you do it, I wouldn't want you guarding me either. So it made me think, and here's my own little kind of thoughts in this, and they might agree, might disagree. If you start befriending someone like Abraham Bolden, you start telling him a lot of confidential stuff where eventually they became close together, which is reported that Abraham Bolden grew close, a friendship with the president. Now, you start getting into this point of if you're only going to tell him that, if you're only going to talk to this, you're only going to talk to your family members, your brother who's talked about like – I think. Robert Kennedy's last few words were something of, of the terms of, I'll probably never know what happened to my brother or something of that sort. You start getting into this area of like, is it conspiracy that they plotted to get rid of the president to get someone new in the position to go with the goals of what the whole establishment wanted? And that's kind of where everybody was going. A lot of people did not like Kennedy 
from the Bay of Pigs invasion. They didn't like him for they thought he cost a lot of troops lives. But he even said he what he didn't want to do this. He he was going to stop this. And nobody really kind of listened to him. They thought maybe he's just going to go with it anyway. And when he didn't do it, he was pushed to blame rather than the other people for thinking that he would change his mind or something like that. And every recorded thing, whether you listen to Eisenhower documentaries or other aspects, they all kind of say that everyone resented him for that move or everyone kind of felt like there was a lot of eyes on him. Now, I look at this point of if you look at JFK's background. He didn't he lose a brother in the war? Didn't he lose somebody? So already, even though you're using this to kind of gateway your presidency in a sense to get to this platform of I'm going to, you know, nuke, nuke, we're going to, you know, handle the war. We're going to go to war and we're going to end this and we're going to win. We're going to be America, which is the platform that he ran on. But then you see he changed his position. Well, that's how you get elected. How many people do we know that get elected now and change their position stance? And everyone's like, why did they go back on what they said? Well, it's because they they were using it to get your vote and then they got your vote and now they're in office and you really can't do anything about it um unless you want to impeach uh nixon you know um but what i'm saying is when you if you take all these kind of like connecting the dots in a sense and i know it's not scientifical but this is kind of how i'm consuming this in a sense and making my own conclusion um if you lose a brother to the war and you realize how especially if you see all those photos of jfk looking at his kids that's a person who realizes the destruction that this is going to do or these moves are going to do, and it's not worth losing a little life like that that might not be your own but might be somebody else's, but there's no good that can come out of it. And I was picking up notes of that while looking at these photographs and seeing a lot of that. Now, people can say maybe that's how the picture was taken. Well, I'll no, keep... you're right. You're absolutely right okay. uh, uh, in this sense. He lost a brother, but he himself – uh, you know, has a heroic story to tell about his uh, World War experience, where, you know, his PT boat um, got hit by uh, Japanese, uh, a Japanese um, patrol boat, I'm not sure what type, but anyway, he ended up uh, swimming and pulling some of his uh, soldiers to safety on an island for hours, and it really hurt his back, by the way, he always had had back problems. That's why he had the back brace in the the, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, and, and other reasons too, but he, uh, he, uh, he obviously, you know, uh, anybody went through world war two is not looking to get into another world war. The other thing that really, really affected him was the missile crisis. Uh, he knew how close they came to a nuclear Holocaust, both he and Khrushchev. And uh, for sure that, you know, this whole, um, you know, warmongering, he was not comfortable with. And he was being pushed and pushed by people like Curtis LeMay during the negotiations during the missile crisis, saying, you got to preempt, you got to hit Russia before they hit us. And, you know, and he was saying, God, you know, I'm not pushing that button. So he ended up with a direct communications with Khrushchev who he himself was being pressured by his own uh, Russian uh, military establishment. So they found a way out of that, thank God, you know. And uh, uh, so definitely uh, he and he did not want to go into Vietnam. He was his, we, we know from national, national security action memorandums and other stuff that he was ordering a pullout of the advisors. So 
uh, he, he, he had, uh, you know, again, Jim Eugenio on that, you know, when you look at his policies and his foreign policy, uh, they, they know that there was a sudden change after his assassination because uh, Johnson reversed everything. He, uh, he and his team were behind the Tonkin Gulf incident, which was made up to get the excuse to go to war and everything. So uh, what you're saying is absolutely true about Kennedy. Uh, he, I think his, and he spoke with uh, uh, ambassadors. He spoke to a guy called Gullion, who really knew about the Vietnam situation and told him, we cannot win that war. We can't because we don't even know who the enemy is. We can't tell them apart. And the French are going to lose it. And if we go in, we're going to get our, you know, we're going to get our asses booted too. So uh, his advisors um, uh, all said that. So, you know, often you're right uh, to get in, you know, he talked about a missile gap. He was saying that we were, uh, the Americans were behind the Russians in terms of missiles, which was not true, but he did that in his campaigning to get elected. You won't get elected in the U.S. if you're not tough on crime, right? And strong militarily, you, you have to be. Uh, you know, in the eyes of the public. So there's a lot of bravado and a lot of talk during elections. But between that and wanting to actually go to war and, you know, uh, unique people who are calm, cool and collected. And I think he was that for the reasons that you, you're stating. And uh, well, there's a difference between being tough on crime and there's a difference between being a bully. So the issue is, is that when you are the bully, it's hard to recognize that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like I think like you'll see snippets of people saying the one thing they liked about Trump was when he handshaked people, he brought them in, you know, there's that aggressive handshake. Now that's being tough and letting people know like, hey, this isn't a bar to set, but it also can be taken as being a bully. And it can actually cause more damage than good. And people have to be aware of that. You want a strong leader, but you don't want someone who's going to be the person that thinks that running the world or being the head of the table is the way to get it. You get it by being fair in a sense. I know it's a dirty world and dirty business, but what you should really respect out of a leader is the qualities of fairness and not wanting to go to war should be your first thing or your priorities. Now, that might be the sense today in a sense of a lot of people don't want to go to war, um, but you, you still find people that call for it. And I think when you especially look at the past, I mean, the past is the best predictor. One thing that Jacob Hornberger said to me that really kind of had me digging a little bit deeper. And I know I've said it for a long time. I don't think the Illuminati's like black cloaks and all that. I think it's just someone that they found to work a system and make the system work in their favor. And you can see this through the Watergate scandal and see the decline of the CIA from there. I had a friend of William Colby, John Ranley on this show before speak about it. Um, Mostly that William Colby wasn't a bad guy, and I didn't think he was, but I think he became a whistleblower of the CIA and got into a lot of trouble of it. And even documents say that during after that Watergate scandal that the CIA would never recover. But I think it showed you how powerful that your government can be when they start working in a bad direction. And necessarily when you're doing bad, you don't necessarily know that you're doing bad. I mean, they were wiretapping Americans' phones. They were doing a lot of stuff that today people would just probably – you know, be astonished at. Um, and what Jacob Hornberger said to me, he goes, they tried to assassinate Castro. And he goes, and they deemed Castro as a threat as he needed to be taken out. Now, if you're in the country like America and you hear that Castro was attempted to be assassinated because he's deemed as a threat, he's deemed as a madman, and they 
call him all these things that maybe he might not be. Maybe he's a little crazy in some aspects. But if you call him all these things, then Amer the American public is going to stand behind what their government's doing when trying to assassinate a leader. Now, what stops them from deeming JFK a threat? All because he wanted to pull out of a war, which a lot of people at this time thought would make us weak. And this is where you get into the thing of the assassination, where we can talk about the attempts that happened prior to the one where they actually succeeded at their job. And hopefully you can enlighten me in on those because I don't know too much about those. And that might fill in a gap on my information, but I'm not doing half bad for doing some like independent research and stuff. Holy crap. I feel like I'm like, I looked into like a well that has a heaven at the bottom of it. Well, you know, you're, you're doing something I think that is smart. It's a scientific method. The scientific method relies on what first observation, right? And you collect the data. And I like the names of the people you're talking about, like James Douglas, Jim Eugenio, uh, David Mantic. I think you, the, the tricky part here is what is, there's so much out there is what do I read? Who do I listen to? Who do I invite on my show? And, you know, I think that uh, you're certainly on the right track. You know, uh, just a word on the Secret Service. Uh, I, the best researcher about the Secret Service, and I've read about two or three of his books, is Vince Palomaro. And Vince Palomaro, uh, uh, you know, knows all about Abraham Bolden, for instance. And when I want to go to, okay, I don't know much about the Secret Service. Oh, let me first see what Vince Palomaro has to, to say. Uh, for the Tippett murder, I'm not a specialist on it, but I know there's a fellow called McBride who wrote a great book called Into the Nightmare. And uh, you know, he, he finds a lot of anomalies and he actually interviewed, I think, Tippett's dad. And so you can find an awful lot there. So if you, if you hover around Kennedy's and King and look at who his authors are, you'll see David Mantix in there. You'll see uh, McBride. You'll find, uh, I think Jim is pretty choosy on who his sources are. So the tricky thing for a younger person coming into it is what sources do I read? Because I've been led down a few rabbit holes and false flags over 20 or 30 years. And I'd read a book and I'd say, ah, okay, you know, but then, then, you know, I wouldn't do the job of looking at who that person's sources were or, you know, what his methodology was. So I ended up, you know, probably writing a few things that I, I think today that I'd say, oh, geez, maybe I, I shouldn't have gone as far in that direction, you know, on a point. So I'm, I'm becoming more and more cautious. So, I, you know, congratulations on approaching it that way. And yeah, for the Here's what I'll say, uh, Robbie, about the prior plots, why uh, I find it super interesting. First of all, if you read the Warren Commission, you won't find a word about the prior plots, not a word. And that is a basic investigative technique, right? There's a crime. Uh, say there was a crime in your neighborhood and it was a weird crime or, or something that stood out. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to ask yourself, is this part of a series of crimes? You know, is there, is there something going on? You know, did the person leave a symbol? Did it, was there a description? Was there something that indicates that, uh, you know, this is not a, uh, a standalone 
uh, incident, but something that that's happening. And and it, it's called case linkage. Criminals, when they investigate it, they try and see if there's links between cases. It's normal. And eventually, after a time, they say, oh, my God, we found something similar uh, that happened in San Francisco. And then you say, whoa, boy, this person moved from San Francisco to New York and whatnot. And then they, they, they can find DNA, they can find fingerprints, they can find uh, a witness testimony. Uh, if you look at the, the JFK assassination, the people who had an awful lot of information about prior plots was the Secret Service. And the Secret Service, when the ARRB came around and said, hey, you're going to declassify the information about prior plots? Well, they burned. They, they, they destroyed all their files on prior plots. Now, luckily, some independent researchers and, and some people had looked in. There was document. There were articles. There were things that you could find where you could piece together information on plots that led up to Dallas. And I looked into them, and I found quite a number. Some that are not too well documented, but a few that are very well documented. And what you see is a template. There's that what happened in Dallas did not happen in a vacuum. There were prior attempts with similar operational uh, uh, modus operandi. So when you looked at that, now, here's what stood out for me. And, I, and I'll uh, just speak generally here. In the case uh, where the CIA or the US wanted to remove the head of another country, for instance, Guatemala, Iran, uh, they had a executive action game plan. And that game plan was called ZR Rifle. It was written up by the American head of assassinations, a guy called William Harvey. William Harvey, uh, he was well known. He was involved in World War II. He was known for the, or past World War II actually, a tunnel that made it under the Berlin Wall. And that was one of his big coups. He was often compared to, you know, called the American James Bond, but he was a big drinker, a hothead, and he hated the Kennedys. He absolutely hated the Kennedys. But let me get back to his template. If you read ZR Rifle, they found some of his notes. And what they said is when you remove someone, you want to blame it on the opponent. You want to create a scenario where the opponent will be blamed for an action you took. So uh, how can we get this blamed on either rebels or, and they always have cutoffs. They always, you know, the CIA doesn't go in and kill anyone. They'll have a cutoff. It'll either be the mafia, it could be Cuban exiles. It'll be something where they have plausible deniability. They'll also, in the ZR rifle plan, they'll talk about how they may have to change the files about a certain person that was involved, namely Oswald in this case, like they had to backdate the files and look at what they said and really control the information they had on Oswald. So he wrote this. And so, so the, in other words, you can almost see the removal of Kennedy as a removal of a head of state, but based on techniques that they were used to using like what they were trying to do to remove Castro, what they did to remove Arbenz, what they removed, did to remove uh, the, the uh, 
I forget the name of the person, but in Iran, and they placed the shine, and then they, they would place people that they could control, okay, control, and it's all about protecting supply lines. They don't want to lose their supply lines of cheap food, fruit, oil, so if they want to control the supply lines, uh, that makes companies richer, it makes American safe, America safer, uh, so that, that was the the formula they were using. So let's get back now to how ZR rifle was applied in the US. Now, you remember the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? Well, Oswald, I write an article that shows that how, when he went to Russia, okay, uh, he went to Russia in, I think it was 1958 or 1959. He comes back in early 62. Well, that whole trek can be shown to be an intelligence operation. And you can see it by the way he learned Russian, by the way he entered the Soviet Union, the equipment he had, uh, you know, and his, his supposedly, he wasn't debriefed when he left Russia, but he was. So if you look at all that went into Oswald before, he, how he got his... Um, his uh, leave uh, from the army and uh, how he even traveled to get to Russia, it all smacks of an intelligence operation. And that's something Richard Schweiker of the Church Committee famously said. He says, wherever, wherever you look with Oswald, you see the fingerprints of intelligence. Then he, so now let's go flash forward. He comes back to the United States. He settles in Dallas. And for some strange reason, he's hobnobbing with white Russians. Now, the white Russians are as right-wing as you can get. And he's supposedly a communist, right? And this doesn't make sense. So the first guy who really wrote about that was Jim Garrison. He says, boy, he's got weird friends for a communist. He's hanging around with George Demorenshield and all these white Russians who hate communism. Now, while his wife is pregnant with their second child, all of a sudden he does this thing and he says, boy, I'm going to go down to New Orleans and I'm going to try and find work there. That was never fully explained why he went down to New Orleans. And then he has the weirdest summer any person ever had. What does he do? Well, actually, even before he left for New Orleans, he starts writing to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Uh, the key, and this is what I worked very hard on in one of my most uh, recent articles, is I say, I looked at who was part of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. What was their history? And look, Fair Play for Cuba Committee was founded somewhere around 1959, around when Castro took power. And it, it started by a bunch of intellectuals and Basically, they were saying, hey, look, let's give Cuba a fair chance here. Let's not dump on them and let's not, uh, let's not you know, uh, go to war with Cuba just because Castro is communist. I, I'm simplifying. So they had you know, a few early successes. Uh, they protested the Bay of Pigs. They got involved with... But by the time they got involved with the missile crisis a year before the assassination, 
the fair play for Cuba started running out of steam. It was the number of meetings they held 20 some meetings a year, typically. Uh, I'm talking about the national headquarters in New York. And in the final year, when Oswald joins, they have about two or three meetings. Uh, during the summer, their sponsors, which included the, uh, I'm trying to find, uh, it was not the Socialist Party, uh, but you know, the Communist and Socialist Parties of the United States, I, I forget the, the, their titles exactly, they were sponsoring and helping them. They said, hey, look, let's close it down. It's not popular. Well, it'll exist in paper only. Now, what does Oswald do? He tries to open a chapter in the worst city imaginable for having a chapter at the worst possible time. So what does that mean is uh, uh, New Orleans depended so much on North-South trade. And they, they, they didn't like the idea of Castro being in power because of the domino effect it could have in their view with their supply lines in Central America and so on and so forth. And that's what New Orleans depended on. So if you're going to choose a city, the ones you want to avoid, and the FPCC was clear about that, is you don't want to open in Miami. You don't want to open in New Orleans. Yet that's what Oswald does. He doesn't get one member. He's the only member. And he starts this chapter. Okay. And the next thing he does is where does he set up office? He sets up office right near Guy Bannister, who is in the same building that they're having meetings and they're organizing extreme white right wing activities with Cuban exiles. Okay. And he's He's a stone throw away with them, and he's often seen with them. And surrounding that building, you had intelligence all over the place. You had Secret Service, CIA, FBI, buildings right near where Oswald sets up his Fair Play for Cuba Committee office, because he made an error once on stamping one of his flyers, and he gave up the Camp Street address, and that gave away the whole game. So now he's saying, oh, he went from all these right-wingers in Dallas, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the white Russians, and now he's hobnobbing with all these right-wingers, including his old friend, David Ferry, because David Ferry was his instructor in the Civil Air Patrol. And David Ferry worked for Guy Bannister and worked with all these Cubans, uh, exiles. Then what does he do? He starts leafleting. At first, he kept it secret. But you know why he was leafleting at first? His job wasn't to, uh, his job was to identify communists. That's what his job was. And he says, hey, if you take the leaflets and you call me, and then he would give those names, most likely to Guy Bannister. And Guy Bannister had a Fair Play for Cuba committee file, and even an Oswald file. So he goes there. But something happens during the course of the summer where he would work mostly underground and they say, hey, you know what? This became the visible Oswald. So he gets into a fight, a stage fight with Carlos Bringier uh, of the DRE. He gets on a radio show where he debates Carlos Bringier and he's doing everything to make himself visible as a fair play for Cuba committee member. Now keep in mind, this 
this organization is dying. It's down to well under 5,000 members nationally, okay? And yet he joins. Now, uh, wait, so just, just, just from what you said, um, I don't want to interrupt you, but so instead of the way that they portrayed him as being a Cuban sympathizer, is it possible that he might have been a right wing person? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I think he was doing a mission. He, he look, he's a conflicted, complicated person who did have, you know, who did state some certain points of view. So it's hard to know. But he, when he went to Russia, he was on a mission. Okay. And by the way, he went during the middle of a false defector program where there are other people of his nature that did enter that way. He's not the only one who entered uh, Russia when he went there. There are other uh, ex-militaries. And some were known to be what they call false defectors. He was most likely a false defector. When he joined the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and this is where, uh, Robbie, I studied the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. I found documents on it. The FBI was all over it. Their job when there was an organization like that was to infiltrate it and get people just like Oswald. So you have a number of these ex-military types that infiltrate the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in Tampa, in Detroit, in LA. So this, what Oswald is doing in New Orleans is being done all over the US. And these people are leafleting and trying to identify the communists. Now, there's a precedent to that. If you recall, uh, uh, Oswald, when he was in Dallas before, who did they become very friendly with? I said the white Russians. But then the next babysitters were the Paynes, right? Ruth Payne and Michael Payne. And Ruth Payne and Michael Payne had files on communist sympathizers. Okay, they had files in there. They, they, they were identifying communist sympathizers. And they happened to be friends with Oswald in Dallas. Now he goes to New Orleans. Who's he chumming up with? Guy Bannister, uh, you know, uh, communist hunters. That's who he's chumming up with. And what, what then happens, though, is, is there's also the possibility, because the FBI was also trying to clamp down on these very... Um, activist Cuban exiles who were very violent there. I mean, they, they, they wanted to shut down the operations against Castro after a while. This is after the, the missile crisis. They said, okay, let's, let's cool it on the terrorism acts in, in Cuba. Let's cool it on the assassination attempts. So there is a likelihood that Oswald was reporting both on communist sympathizers and anti-Castro activity. Now, some people have speculated that he became expendable, that the Cuban exiles and a few others were onto him. And they were saying, God, this guy's a traitor. He's, he's, he's pretending to be on our side. He's pretending to do this, but he's actually giving information to the FBI to make our activities more difficult. That I can't document fully. But one thing's for sure is in the middle of the summer, he becomes visible and he's being set up as a patsy. He's becoming the patsy because he's the perfect patsy. Uh, the perfect patsy because 
Uh, he's now someone you can connect to Castro. The rumors are starting to come up that he's going to Mexico City. He's trying to meet the Russian uh, head of assassinations. He's meeting Cuban agents, which is all false, by the way. But that's the that's the scenario. You know, the ZR rifle scenario. How can we connect him to a foe? That's what's going on throughout that summer and that trip to Mexico City, right? So that when he gets caught, we're going to say, oh, geez, he's dead now because they wanted to assassinate him quick, not two days later. They wanted to assassinate uh, Oswald the day it happened, but he survived two days. And then they would have said this plan A was to say, uh, oh, look, this guy, Oswald. Yeah, they didn't mind that there was a shot from the front. They didn't mind that there would have been three shooters. But I guarantee you, all three shooters would have been pro-Castro, you know, if, it, if if they had gone that route. So just to get the idea, now, if you look at the Fair Play for Cuba committee, okay, this organization, I, I, I'm trying to establish that it is being infested by informants by them. Now, who's another person that joins the Fair Play for Cuba or, or attends meetings? It's another potential patsy in Tampa. His name is Polycarpo Lopez. And the FBI did find that this guy uh, was making rumors that, you know, that, uh, you know, he, he, he was coming across as pro-Castro. And you know what happens a few days before the assassination, because, uh, sorry, Kennedy, before going to Dallas, a few days earlier, went to Miami and Tampa. But there were rumors that there'd be an attempt to kill him in Tampa. And the potential patsy happens to be Polycarpo Lopez. This guy goes down to Mexico City right after uh, the visit, the, uh, the Kennedy visit, ends up being a lone passenger on a plane to Cuba. Okay. And he uses the same entry points to get to Mexico City that supposedly Oswald did and goes through. Uh, you know, has a relationship with some of the people Oswald did in Mexico City. The reason I bring this case up, that's one prior plot, and there are a number of them, is, of course, he happens to have attended Fair Play for Cuba committee meetings shortly before. Now, the coincidence of that, given how weak the Fair Play for Cuba committee was, that Oswald and Polycarpo Lopez Okay, two potential, one potential patsy and the other one a patsy. That finally came out by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And they say, you know what? The Warren Commission didn't even look into this guy. And the fact that he left the way Oswald tried to get into Cuba, the fact that he was part of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, it's egregious that we didn't look into that. Now, there are other cases. We talked about Abraham Bolden. That occurred less than a month before the, uh, the Dallas assassination. Kennedy was to go to Chicago. And one of the Secret Service people in charge of the security in Chicago was Abraham Bolden. And what you said earlier is exactly right. What did he see? Lacks, uh, lacks uh, security. He witnessed things. There was rumors. They actually had four Cubans 
that were headed up with rifles to kill Kennedy. Uh, that made it to the FBI. A landlady saw the four Cubans with rifles and maps of the motorcade. And they report, she reported that to the FBI. The FBI passed on the information to the Secret Service. The Secret Service botches the surveillance, but do pick up two of the Cubans or Latinos. And they can't get any information out of the two Cubans. Let's say, some say they're Puerto Rican and we have no pictures of them and they end up letting them go. But at the same time in Chicago, there's another guy called Thomas Arthur Vallet. This guy was in Long Island and they move him to Chicago. He's a, he's a bit of a nut. I mean, he's an ex-Marine. He had gone to Japan like Oswald. He had been involved in sort of activities similar to Oswald. And next thing you know, this guy is moved into a building that looks like the Texas School Book Depository, exactly in a venue where Kennedy would have traveled and would have had to do a weird turn, slow down, right? But Kennedy ended up canceling that trip because there were just too many rumors of, uh, of assassination attempts uh, that, that, that could take place. So you have another weird guy in Valley that is so similar to Oswald. Now I'm gonna go in another one. In June, there was a guy, uh, Kennedy was supposed to have been killed in a movie theater in LA during the showing of the, uh, the book about his war heroics. And the Patsy there would have been the head of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee chapter in LA, a guy called Von Marlowe. And that one's not as documented as Chicago and Tampa. But those are, you see, so when you, you look at case linkage, what you see, uh, Robbie, is a template that resembles ZR rifle. That is, hey, we've got the people that will allow us to blame it on Cuba. Okay. Now, some are well-documented. Some are semi-documented. And look, there are other cases, I've named you three, but there's other three, there's at least five or six other instances that are really bizarre also, that would have allowed the same sort of, um, same sort of scenario that could have allowed Plan A to succeed. Plan A, again, was the CIA and American uh, military uh, uh, industrial complex wanting to retake the island of Cuba and invade it. That was nixed by Johnson. Johnson said, no, we're not doing that. We'll go into Vietnam, but we're not, we're not going to go with Cuba. Uh, the missile crisis was a year earlier. We don't, you know, we don't want a world war there on this. So I, I don't know if I... You, you did, but... You know, I, I gotta, if that gives you an idea of what, what that area of research that I talked to you about, you know, the articles, if you read them uh, in Kennedy's and King, uh, I actually create a profile of about nine or 10 people that have so many similar similarities to Oswald, uh, seven of which are connected to the almost dead Fair Play for Cuba committee. Many of them ex-Marines, many of them tried to enter Mexico, uh, uh, Cuba through Mexico. So that's, that's what the prior plots article is about. And that's what I was interviewed on by Oliver Stone. Could I, um, Tyson, toss out a hypothetical it's going to link down into 
um, the same scenario either way. Cause I'm trying to understand why Oswald was at that um, where, the, where they did catch him, even just in that general area, but also trying to understand the same time when, why would, um, Oh God, I want to blank on his name. The mafia guy who killed Oswald Ruby. Jack Ruby. Ruby. why Jack Ruby would kill him. And here's kind of where I go with this. So when we talk about, you could either pin Oswald to make him look as a Cuban sympathizer or some type of person who is betraying his country, which throughout a lot of these documents, you'll find that double agent, possibly all these types of talks that were getting thrown around the room, whether it was the Warren commission or the later review of it. Um, one thing I can't, if, if we go down the Cuban sympathizer route, uh, then it's easy to have what I look at is the lone gunman theory. The one one person killed the president. In my opinion, you can easily well, not my opinion, but some evidence. There's a shot that hit from the front when it hit the windshield. So that goes, OK, so there are at least two shooters. So I get to this point of. Uh, oh God, I'm going to blank on his name again. He just said it a second ago. The mafia guy. Yeah, Jack Ruby. So. Is this maybe just my own evidence? And you can kind of look at it through both ways, whether you're going to label him as a Cuban sympathizer or whether you want to look at him as a right wing person, because a lot of the right wing that I've heard from Jacob Hornberger was filled in the Secret Service. And that goes to Oliver Stone's idea of clearing house. JFK never cleared house like he should have. He should have took out the old committee and put a new one in there because a lot of people didn't agree with him partially especially with abraham bolden's account of the story as well too that the secret service a lot of the members were right wing that did not agree with the way that jfk was running things you can tackle it from two angles the cuban sympathizer angle or you can tackle it from the right wing uh theory that they used oswald saying you need to kill the president or you need to shoot the president but here's where it, it where i start bringing in where it brings in jack ruby jack ruby out of nowhere comes up and stabs oswald or shoots oswald yeah shoots shoots Oswald. So I get to this point where you ask the question, why would Jack Ruby shoot Oswald? Mafia connections. People would look at it. Maybe he was a patriot trying to get back for killing the president. I doubt it. He was in the mafia. There's no way. So that means they had mafia connections where I link into this point where I go, maybe Jack Ruby was one of the people that fired off a shot at the president. At the same time, Oswald was set up there to do the same exact thing. Oswald was the one that became the patsy and Jack Ruby was going to lose all the, they were going to pay him something to be the patsy. They were going to, for being the fall guy, you get compensation. Your family gets, you get respect. You get a bunch of things that the mafia likes, but also your family gets taken care of. So him now realizing that he's not going to get that payment that was offered or hypothetical, like I said, it's my own little hypothetical scenario that he's not going to get that money. That's going to be going to his family. It's now going to be Oswald. They already got the guy taking the fall. It's kind of like if I told you to pick me up at 1030, but I didn't think you were going to come through, I would call somebody else at the same time and see which person shows up like ordering an Uber. So I go, you had two assassins that were trying to get the president in case one failed. Another one, you couldn't have two failures, right? You would only have one. One person would miss, but the president would still be dead. But then now Jack Ruby realizing Oswald's getting the blame of killing the president and his family's not going to be compensated. He might as well kill Oswald. And at least his family will still get compensated. Maybe. I mean, it's a hypothetical, but it's the way I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, that's a really good 
freaking plan, man, to have to, to take out the loan gunman theory. It doesn't make sense. Some people want to believe it, whatever. I'm not saying they're wrong, but at the same time, I am. Um, but I'm going to this point where I go, if you get two people to try and kill the president, it's best to have those two people that were going to kill the president in your pocket instead of maybe blaming Oswald as a Cuban sympathizer. Maybe it's because most of the right wing was already in the Secret Service talking about well, how would you assassinate the president anyway? And then the way that they said that they were going to do it, they did do it. You go, OK, if the Secret Service didn't want to look wanted to go to war. Or maybe the whole government agency wanted to do war, and JFK was the one that was backing out, so he was seen as a problem or you deem him as a threat and need to take him out. Imagine having two shooters trying to attempt to kill the president in case one fails, the other one succeeds. And then Jack Ruby was like, wait, my family still got to get the money. So in his anger, kills Oswald. Hmm. Well, uh, first of all, Jack Ruby, uh, you're right. Some people have looked into him. Uh, one of the first people was a guy called Cantor, K-A-N-T-O-R. And he's written some pretty interesting stuff because you have to understand who Jack Ruby was, right? And you have to get into his background. So Jack Ruby uh, actually started his, he, he was a, he wanted to be a made man. You know, he was a small time mafia a connected guy, but he was doing things to ingratiate himself. And he definitely was involved with the mafia. Just give me one quick second. Uh, yeah. Uh, and let me explain. He, he started off up in Chicago under Al Capone, very indirectly, very small person. I can hear that, Paul. Oh, sorry. You don't, you don't hear it? No, I, I can hear your, your phone vibrating. on. Never mind. It stopped. It just stopped. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. So he uh, heads down to... Um, Dallas, he starts a few strip joints with his sister, Eva. Uh, and he starts, uh, you know, one of them being the Carousel Club. Uh, his dealings there bring him to have to be somewhat involved with the Marcello family, because, you know, when you're hiring strippers and, you, you, you know, it, it's, it's kind of linked. Uh, one of the things he tries to do, and this is definite, he tries to spring uh, Santo Traficante from a Cuban jail. And he goes to Cuba. And Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcelo are some of the mafia people that are the most connected in the story uh, of the assassination. What was the mafia component in this whole thing? Uh, so he tries to spring Traficante. And he figures by springing this guy who was at the time, you know, when Cuba was being run by the mafia, well, you had, you know, the network of CIA, Cuban mafia, uh, sorry, American mafia and Cuban exiles. There were almost a little network in Cuba. And then Castro takes over. Well, all these people are booted either into jail or off the island and they coalesce in Miami, most of them. Some in Dallas, some in New Orleans. So uh, when you look at, at uh, Jack Ruby, I believe what he was being told is, hey, look, you're our guy. Because he, he probably was in the know of the assassination. He had many ins with the Dallas police. He was the Dallas police. Many of them went to his carousel club. 
<laughs> you know, I need to offer them free drinks. Women, you wouldn't believe it. So for him to have made it into, uh, you know, the the place where they were keeping Oswald, because he was stalking Oswald for two days or three days. He, you, you even have him on camera there. You can hear him actually correcting the DA, Wade, saying DA said that Oswald was part of the Free Cuba Committee. And you can see on YouTube, if you want, Ruby correcting Wade saying, no, that's the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He corrects them, not the journalists, anyone. So we're saying, what the heck is this, this small-time mafia guy doing? Uh, so he, he was working on trying to eliminate uh, uh, Oswald. He was under orders to do so. The reason he did it, I think uh, that you're right. They, uh, he had debts, and they, they offered to pay off his debts. He did run into some money. And I think they said, you know what? You're going to get off of this as a patriot. You'll have killed the killer of the president. And you're going to be able to say that it was, you know, temporary insanity. So you should get off pretty easy. And you better do it, Jack. You better do it. So his first visitor when he was in jail was the top guy in Dallas, a mafioso, the top guy. And basically saying, you better keep your mouth shut. You know, like, uh, thank you for doing it. Here's what we're going to do. We don't know what they said. But uh, they analyzed uh, Cube. Uh, sorry, Ruby's phone calls to the weeks leading up to the assassination and the number of phone calls that he makes to mafia-connected figures during the buildup is ridiculous. So even the HSCA, when they looked into that, um, said, look, Ruby's not this guy who killed Oswald because you know he, he felt bad for Jackie Kennedy and wanted to spare her, you know, all the effort of coming down to a trial in Dallas. You know, that was a, the ridiculous excuse that was given uh, for uh, the Ruby assassinating Oswald. There are quite a few sightings that aren't proven, but that Oswald and Ruby knew one another. Okay, there, there's a lot of argument to that effect. Quite a few people uh, who claim to have seen them together, including some of the strippers in the Carousel Club and others. But let me uh, tell you what I think. Uh, but who my spec well, my speculations aren't bad, though, right? Because like, no, 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 they're not bad. I mean, I think you can you can make an argument they're in cahoots. I would not think that he was a shooter, though, because you know the shooters. How did he get there? You know, well, uh, the, the, you know, it, it occurred. He wasn't, uh, his claim to his whereabouts when the shooting took place was that he was uh, at the news media where he's placing ads for the Carousel Club. And uh, mind you, you're right. There was a sighting of someone who looked very closely like Ruby at Daily Plaza too. So it's not clear where he was. But look, I think he was in the know. I think he, uh, he, you know, he, uh, he, he was forced into having to take him out because I think the plan was to take out Oswald and not let him survive 48 hours. They did not want this guy to talk. They did not want Oswald to talk for sure. 
but look, if you read Larry Hancock, he wrote a book called. Yeah, Cooking. he's been on the show. He's he's. Oh, to, he's great. And I was going to get me, you, and him, and Jim all in one chat. Oh yeah, no, Larry and I talk uh, quite a bit, and Larry talked to Larry about the training that was being done in Miami during the period leading up to the assassination. I'm pretty convinced that he's fingered the trainers of the assassination. Okay, and these are the people in charge of assassinations for the, uh, the CIA, and they were training Cuban exiles, okay? And there is a mafia component in Johnny Rosselli, if you recall that name, who was very close to that gang in Miami, the CIA. And it, if you want to go that route, I, I, I feel that Larry's on to something with Bill Simpich and a few others who've really looked into, because there's a New Orleans component to the assassination, there's a Miami component. Try and think of it this way, Robbie. There's two things. There's a logistics of getting him killed through triangulation of fire. That's a lot of training, okay? And that's a lot of planning. And there was a similar attempt on Castro later when he went to Mexico City. They were looking at a possibility of triangulation of fire. That is most likely an operation that was done under people like uh, a guy called Morales, who was another guy who hated Kennedy, and he was the top killer for the, the, for the CIA. He was part of taking out uh, Che Guevara, okay, in Chile, or is it Chile or Bolivia? Anyway, I'm not sure, not in Chile, in one of those South American uh, states. And if you look at him, and people like Tony Sforza, and that's where uh, Larry Hancock's really strong. Yeah, he sent me his information um, about his yeah. book that he wrote. Yeah, and that's, that's, that to me, I think he's on to something. Now, the second component that I think I've written quite a bit on is the whole propaganda side. The whole side to say, okay, here's the storyline. And you have people in the CIA who are really good at that. Two of the most important people during some of these uh, takeovers and these wars. And these uh, were David Atlee Phillips, who was, I mean, he was in Mexico City when the fake Oswald went there. And he's clearly involved in all these lies around the tapes and the photos and everything. David Atlee Phillips, I'll tell you why he's interesting. There are so many touch points between David Atlee Phillips and Oswald, it's ridiculous. For instance, he was in charge of um, surveying and controlling, or, or, or how could I put it, uh, all the dirty tricks around the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. It was David Atlee Phillips. Manipulation. And you know that guy Oswald got into a fight with, Carlos Bringuer, mm -hmm. and later went on the radio with? Well, Carlos Bringuer was the head of the DRE in Oswald. The uh, it was a Cuban exile group. Okay, called the DRE. Now, you know who set up the DRE? David Atlee Phillips. Okay. So now you have David Atlee Phillips. And by the way, those are only two. So if you have David Atlee Phillips, think about that. Controlling the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, uh, you know, uh, intelligence and, and activities. And you have David Atlee Phillips, who's involved with the DRE. And then I could get into another group called Alpha 66 that also interacts with Oswald. And uh, 
he set up Alpha 66. I mean, there's so many touch points. Another guy is Lansdale, Richard Lansdale, who uh, uh, is Mr. Scenario for an operation where you can have all of a sudden a revolution or whatever, but we'll, we'll blame it on the communists somehow. Okay, so if you look at these two lines of operation, one, the propaganda side, and you look into David Atley Phillips uh, and, and you know stuff I and others have written about, and then you look at the operational side, which is, okay, how do we actually take him out? And these people, by the way, are used to working together. Morales and David Atley Phillips knew one another. They were closely linked when they removed Arbenz. Uh, Larry Hancock calls it a cater, a cater of like-minded CIA operatives who know how to do regime change. And I would bet that the shooters, uh, you know, it would be really experienced people, snipers, okay, that that are under that asp, uh, that uh, training operation that took place in the Keys and Miami, and uh, and uh, I think Larry's on to something uh, really interesting there, and I think what you want to do now to understand the assassination, try and think of it this way. You want to go back, you have two really good, um, really good researchers that pushed the case forward and got into trouble for it. On the whole New Orleans side, it was Jim Garrison. And that's why I'm reading his Garrison files and finding incredible stuff in it. But it's thousands of pages. And Garrison comes up and he says, you know what he did here? with Bannister, with David Ferry, with, uh, you know, and, and he starts aligning that. And this trip to Mexico City stinks, okay? That's one. And under that, you have disciples of Garrison. And these would include people like William Davy, Jim Eugenio. okay? They, they took his work and they went and questioned witnesses and they read his stuff. And that's how you get the movie JFK, right? under Oliver Stone, and then the documentary. Then your other key person, and don't forget this name, is Gaetan Fonzi. Gaetan Fonzi was a sleuth. Like, he was the best investigator for both the Church Committee and the House Select Committee in assassinations. Not only did he find this whole David Attlee Phillips link and turn him to an, into an extremely important person, but he was on to what was going on in Miami. And he says, there's something going on around JM Wave. Uh, there's the, the, what went on in JM Wave with the Cuban exiles, the CIA and the mafia uh, coalesced into, uh, you know, into people that were behind the assassination. And he was on to it. And who are his disciples? Bill Simpich, Larry Hancock. And if you connect the two, if you connect the whole Fonzie, uh, garrison schools of thought. And now we're linking them more and more because we're finding more and more links of people that were in New Orleans and people that were in Miami. We're seeing them through the DRE. We're seeing them through Alpha 66. We're seeing them through JM Wave, a guy called George Joannides, who replaced David Atlee Phillip. He was in Miami, but he shows up in New Orleans and he's working with the DRE uh, guys like Carlos Bringier, 
when the assassination takes place. And what does George Joannidis end up doing? He ends up being the person that was assigned by the CIA when the House Select Committee on Assassinations was making so much progress. They say, hey, he's your new contact for the CIA, for our documents and everything. He shut the door because when he went in, it was getting so hot what the people were finding. They had to shut the door. They chose the guy, George Joannidis, who was right in the thick of things in New Orleans uh, before the assassination. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so I, I'm kind of throwing a lot at you. Right yeah, now, we're going to we're going to have to do a whole panel. Like I said, we're I'm going to get trying to get everybody in. Oh, you get Larry, that. you get Jim, you get me, you get a few others and we'll have a very interesting discussion. Yeah. But I think if you read. Destiny Betrayed by Jim D'Eugenio, and you read Tipping Point by Larry Hancock, and maybe read a few of my articles on Kennedy's and King about the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and the prior plots, you're going to start getting, uh, you know, you talked about Jim Douglas and The Unspeakable. That's an amazing book, okay? So if you, if, because, you know, the danger you have right now is you're, you're going through a funnel of information and if, if I, I would suggest to you that if, talk to people like me, Jim and Larry and say, what should I read? What, 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 what's the thing? And you, you'll see that you'll get a little bit farther away from the backyard photos. You'll even get a little bit farther away from the Zapruder film. You're going to get away from the idea of let's prove there was a conspiracy. No, let's figure out what it was. Okay. Because all the things that prove there was a conspiracy, I can give you 12 chokeholds and you can say, okay, I've heard enough. You know, in Destiny Betrayed, the, the documentary, the whole chain of custody around the bullets is insane, right? So, uh, so you, 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 that to me, if you want to it, do it, though, keep looking at that because phase one, you're going to say, oh, yeah, there's a conspiracy and the Warren Commission was BS, right? But phase two is what? What did in fact happen? Okay. And when you get into phase two, those are the, the people. If you read, if you read Destiny Betrayed, it really impressed upon me. Uh, and uh, The Unspeakable, uh, another one, David Talbot, The Devil's Chessboard. You have to read that. The Devil's Chessboard talks about Alan Dulles. And Alan Dulles, what happened after Kennedy fired him? What did he do for those few years? And how does he link with all this? And, you know, I think there you're going to, you're going to, you're going to make, you're going to leapfrog, okay? A whole bunch of stuff and you're going to get into, but you're doing exactly the right thing. You're talking to people like me, you're talking to, and you can listen, you can discard a few things I did and make a judgment, but that that's going to really, really uh, help your uh, but you know what? I like the names of the people you talked about that you're talking to and the panel you want to make. And if ever you want me on a panel, I'll be more than happy to join it. Yeah, I want to, um, we can talk off air about setting up a future day. I want to make sure that, um, especially if you have any resources or anything to um, people that I might, I have a guest list I can name off to you um, after this, and then you'll be able to tell me um, who would be uh, good for a conversation with everybody because I, I get everybody has various opinions but i think on this one you all see i'm really trying my hardest to be able oh to no your 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 instincts are great okay and your 
your whereabouts on, you know, okay, trying to figure out Tippett and, and Ruby, you know, the key in here is who was Tippett? Who was Ruby? Who was Oswald? You're doing a good job. Find out who they were. And, and then, uh, you know, but the biggest danger I had when I first started is saying, well, exactly what you're saying. What is reliable and what isn't? If you knew how much time I wasted on the Torbit document, and now, and for a while I say, oh my God, I don't believe, or, or Judith Very Baker stuff, I read her book, and I wouldn't say that it's totally, uh, I did find some interesting things in it, but, you know, and then of course it was Madeline Brown, the mistress of Lyndon Johnson, and what she had to say about Lyndon Johnson's involvement and all that. And then all of a sudden you say, oh God, how much time did I wait? I spent too many hours on that. Okay, so the big thing is what are the rabbit holes and what brings you closer to your goal? Jim DiGino brings you closer to your goal. Oliver Stone brings you closer to your goal. Larry Hancock. The goals get Oliver Stone on here. That's my childhood hero. Um, oh, well, you know, he's coming to Quebec City. I know, I know, I know, I know. You're I'm, lucky. I'm so happy. That he'll be here in a couple of weeks. If ever you're in town, let me know. Uh, I'll send you an invitation to. Uh, where Where are you living in Washington right now? Or? I live in Maryland, which is a couple hours away from uh, Washington D.C. Yeah. Okay. I've been there. Well, I'm trying to think of Maryland, but uh, my interview was in Washington. But um, Paul, where's uh, where can people find your links? Um, Kennedy's and King's site. We know you have articles linked in there as well, too. Do you have, a, I, I, I followed your Twitter, but I don't think you're active on there. No, I'm not that active. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, oh, I, I, uh, I don't have a website. I, uh, not yet. Um, because you know, I have a full-time job teaching. Yeah. Uh, but I'm starting to clear up a bit more time because I'm, I'm writing an article right now on the fair play for Cuba committee is a, I wrote two parts on it. And I, I found from the garrison files, I'm going to be writing a series of articles on what do the garrison files tell us. I wouldn't recommend that, you know, you, you, you know, I would rec the, the, the books I would recommend, Destiny Betrayed, Tipping Point, uh, Vince Palomara has uh, some nice things on the Fair Play for Q, uh, not the on the Secret Service. He's someone you want to meet, for sure. And I can send you an email with my name if ever you want to interview him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, so but uh, yeah, no, I'll send you um, information about the the event. And if if ever you're in the area, you know. Uh, yeah. Um. I'm going to link all your links in the description. We're going to talk off air in a second anyway, but um, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. Bye.